Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Stories, profiles, and interviews of courage, triumph, and do not forget perseverance. My name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me as always, my hostess with the mostest, my beautiful wife. Her name is... Is that me? That's you. Just Jen. Just Jen. And you're along with us as we're keeping this a hope train and moving on down the tracks. Choo-choo. Choo-choo. So how you doing? I am okay on this fabulous day. Yes, it is a fabulous day. You know why? Because we're alive, we're awake, we're healthy, we're Mm -hmm. present. We are not defeated. We are not defeated. We are rising. We are moving. We are going. We are forward progressing. Rising like the phoenix. Rising like the phoenix. I like that. That's good. That's my good mantra for today. I'm just, today's going to be awesome. (laughs) You know why I think it's going to be awesome? Because you said it's going to be awesome. That's exactly right. See, I know and, and And we're going to be talking from somebody across the pond. We're going to have an interview with mm-hmm. somebody from London. Ooh. I'll tell you all about her in a minute. Okay. But I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that too. All right. So um, we're opening up a little bit more. Pandemic's opening up. I got my hair cut a few days ago. I'm really, really happy I did. You want to know why I know that you're really, really happy and excited about that? Because I've said it to you once. Because you've said it like 25 no. times. No. Yes. We no. all know you got a haircut. No, it's the little things. It is the little things, but... It's the little things that matter. I'm so happy for you. I mean, you even don't even have your normal headphones on because you didn't want to crunch your hair. Now you're calling me out. <laughs> now you're Just telling saying. my... my our relationship secrets here. I keep it real. You know that. Yeah, real as it gets. But your hair does look really nice. Thank you. Looking all fresh and fly. You're very fancy. (laughs) You ready for joke time? I'm ready for joke time. You got a joke? Yep, I do have a joke. Well, let's make some people laugh. Okay, let's do it. Okay, you go first. Oh, okay. You ready for this? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. Go. Okay. Why do blondes... Oh my gosh, you're telling a blonde joke? But I'm blonde, so I can tell blonde jokes. Okay. Okay. Why do blondes like to make Kool-Aid? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm already at, I'm already laughing. Why do blondes like to make Kool-Aid? Actually, I said it wrong. Really? <laughs> this is why I don't like joke time. <laughs> oh, okay, Lordy. Okay, let me All start right. up. Ready? Okay. Why don't blondes like to make Kool-Aid? Why don't blondes like to make Kool-Aid? I don't know why. <laughs> because they can't fit eight quarts of water in that tiny little packet. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually funny. I you like can't that. fit it in there. You want to know how I know? How? I've tried. You've tried. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have. That was a funny <laughs> one. I like that one. All right. So here's one I think that you will like, and I think will make you laugh. Okay. It's simple. Simple. I like okay. simple. What's the difference between a hippo and a zippo? One's on fire. One is really heavy, and the other is a little lighter. (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) I thought that was a good one, too. See, I've learned the secret to making you laugh. The secret (laughs) to making you laugh is do not tell a joke that has more than one (laughs) interpretation of it. Well, yes. Because otherwise, it's like your mind will process the 85 different versions of it yeah and you can't tell a joke that's really really long because halfway through i'm already thinking about food food 
I'm hungry. <laughs> is it almost over? And then I forgot what you said. So then I'm like, mm. the secret to Jen is she likes food and keep it simple. Yes. And keep it simple. Right. All right. So I'm excited. We're going to have Tulsi Vagiani on our show. She's coming to us all the way from London. We already said that. I know. Well, I'm telling you now that her name is Tulsi Vagiani. Tulsi. And we're going to have an interview with her. Okay. And she's somebody that I wanted to interview because I saw her story on Instagram. And it's just a powerful message. She suffered a tremendous amount of loss. And she's overcome and risen from significant adversity. And, and so much so, I don't want to give any of it away. Okay. I want her to tell her story herself. So, you ready? Surprise, yeah. Should we get on the line? Should we call call across the pond? Let's do it. All right, I've got Tulsi Vagiani on the line all the way from London. Welcome to the show, Tulsi. How are you today? Good. How are you, Sean and Jen? I hope you're well. Um, I'm great. It's so lovely to be connecting to you guys from across the pond (laughs) it is it's awesome we're doing fantastic it's a it's a bright sunshiny day it's a beautiful day and i just got a haircut yesterday so i'm feeling like a new man for the first (laughs) time in two and a half months i feel like i got a little pep in my step and so we're ready to go yes sounds like a different kind kind of lockdown lifting i guess when you get a haircut (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah i did have to wear a mask which made it a little interesting when they're trimming the back side of my head but the reality of it is is that uh you know we did we did we're at stage two out here which basically means some things have started to open up but not not in mass but um you know we're living our best pandemic life right now is what we're doing we're (laughs) talking to awesome people like yourself yes Brilliant. I wanted to have you on the line because I've read about your story and I know that you have been through a lot and I think that your story can really inspire hope in others. And so maybe a, a good place for us to begin is um, with what happened, the, the formative event of your life that's kind of shaped your life since. So I'll let you uh, tell us about that and uh, describe it and then... Um, you know, that way our audience can kind of come up to speed on on who you are. Yeah, well, well thank you so much, Sean, for that. And um, thank you so much for reaching out. So, I mean, my story sort of starts when I was 10 years old. I was involved in a plane crash in India. Um, I was with my mom, dad, and my brother. We were traveling for like three months um, touring India. At that time, um, our luggage got lost. Um, so we had to go back to uh, Mumbai. So we thought whilst we're there, we're going to travel the south of India and then go back to the village, uh, which is on the west part of India, to go and see my great granddad again. So we're really, really excited. Um, me and my brother are fighting to sit by the window seat. Um, for those of you who don't know, but like London is generally very rainy. And so we were always used to gray clouds, but the fact that out of the plane, I could see uh, blue skies and green fields, it was fascinating. Mm. And my brother being the youngest, he got his way. He got to sit by the window. And then the next thing I know is I'm hearing my grandmother's voice. I've left my grandmother back in the UK. So her voice is very, very crystal clear to me. It's as if you know, someone sitting next to you, it's so much more clearer than somebody on the other end of the phone. 
Um, and when you're talking 30 years ago, the communication wasn't as clear as it would be today. So she's talking to me and she's crying. Now, anyone who would know my grandmother, she was very much you know, self-contained in her emotions. Um, she never cried. She never gave anything away. And here she is now telling me, you've been involved in a plane crash. Your mom, dad, and Gamlesh, which is my brother, have passed away. So not only that sounds really baffling, but she also tells me, you look different. Well, in my head is me fighting with my brother and also then thinking she's come out to India and surprising us on the plane. So I think this whole conversation is actually happening on the plane. So I'm not actually aware that I'm in hospital at this stage fighting for my life. I then hear a young medic's voice explaining, you know, he's going to be looking after me. Um, there's been a big emergency. All the doctors and nurses are busy with all the patients coming in and all the fatalities. Now, this voice is completely foreign to me. It's not even familiar. It's not a family voice or friends. I'm really confused. So I don't give too much thought to that. I'm then sort of transported back to the UK for my treatment and to go and live with my family who I was going to be taking care of there. I'm, I have no time concept. My accident happened on 14th of February, 1990. So it's the date that no one will ever forget, Valentine's Day. Yeah. And I'm now greeted or well met by my um, other family, like my aunties and uncles and cousins, who are now telling me the same information. You know, Dulce, you've, um, you've been involved in a plane crash. Your mom, dad, and your brother have passed away. You look different in amongst crying as well. So the whole thing put together. So it's like two lots of people have now told me the same thing. It doesn't, like, I guess it doesn't really dawn on me what's actually happened because I'm in and out of sedation, in and out of theater, you know, having my skin graft and, you know, reconstruction surgery. Um, obviously, I've inhaled a lot of smoke. So just all general, general surgery. And it's not until about four to six weeks post-accident where they removed the bandages from my eyes. And I, you know, um, I get told that, would you like to see yourself in the mirror? And I thought, of course I want to because internally I still feel like the same person because the way I was talking to my family and friends who who used to come and see me every day was the same policy before the accident. I knew nothing different. I was, you know, boisterous, very jovial, um, you know, like practical jokes. And I, I was very much that, laughing all the time. So to me, because I didn't feel any different and because I don't know what looking different actually means, I was so eager to see myself in the mirror. So I remember the consultant and the nurse being present in the room, and I think they were quite concerned as to, you know, does she really not know what's going on? Like, how how is she that excitable to see this change? And, you know, what I remember is holding that mirror up, and I really thought somebody drew that face on. I actually thought somebody was playing a prank on me like I probably would have done on someone else. And that person staring back at me was not me. I don't know who that person was. 
But as the person in the mirror blinked their eyes and moved their mouth, I realized that's me. Wow, that is me. And when I looked at my left hand, which is um, quite badly burnt, and there was metal uh, rods sticking out my fingers to straighten them and red raw scars, like very angry looking, you know, burns. It hit me that something has happened. However, I also, whether it be naive or optimistic, I truly believe like in a year's time, there's going to be this magic cloth and it's all going to go away. And, you know, I truly believe that. So, so let me, let me, let me, let me ask a couple of questions there. Number one, extremely powerful message, extremely powerful story. And so let, let's just make sure everyone's on the same page. Major accident. This was a big airplane, correct? This is like a three seat across on either aisle, like a major transport passenger airplane, correct? Yeah, that's right. It's a domestic flight. Yeah. How many people were on board the flight? Um, I think an average about 149, like the figures kind of, you know, they're not all accurate, but around that much. And so the, the plane crashes, there's an, there's an accident and you're a survivor of that accident, but yet you lose your family. You lose your mom, your dad, and, and your brother. And you're 10 years old. You have really no idea. Like you remember fighting over the seat. You remember being in the, pl- in the airplane. And then all of a sudden, all of that's gone. And all you can hear is your grandmother's voice. And you're now in this new reality. H- how many people survived the crash? I believe around 62 approximately. Okay. And so you find yourself waking up and as part of the crash, you were burned. Your body was burned. And so how much of your body was burned uh, third degree? Um, So I've got 45% um, degree burns to my face and body um, between second and third degree burns, but um, predominantly third degree is about 45 so you are now waking up in the hospital. People are telling you that you've been in an accident, that you've lost your, your mom and dad and your brother, and now they're trying to share with you that you do look different, and this is the first time that you're now seeing yourself, and it's just one of those things that you cannot believe. You cannot believe that that person in the mirror looking back at you is actually you. That's correct. I mean, it's such a surreal concept here I am on holiday with my family to now looking different in a split second and and not having any any bracing for it not having any understanding I mean that's one thing about significant traumas like you don't even have the, the memories of it it's just all like all of a sudden can you imagine Jen yeah. like just waking up and like being conscious and all of a sudden realizing how different now your life is going to be from that moment right. and then and then processing the loss you know, your mom, Absolutely. your dad, your brother. Did you have any other siblings or was it just the four of you as a family? No, it was just the four of us. So I'm the sole survivor of my family. Wow. Okay. So you wake up in the hospital. You finally now take a look at yourself in the mirror. And then you're of this mindset that, you know, somehow, some way, things are going to get back to normal in a year or whatever time frame you aside. You're just trying to adjust to this new life and wrap your head around what has happened. Absolutely. Like for me, I mean, you know, no one can prepare you for this anyway. That's why 
you know, it's called life changing. Um, but I think for me, because in hospital, everyone treated me as just me, as Bulsi, you know, laughing and joking, obviously working through the pain and trying to encourage me. It's okay. You've got this. So when I'm now discharged from hospital, it's the reality hits now where people crossing the road in case they caught something from me, people calling me names, like the word ugly. I didn't even know what that actually meant. So I carried that word as if it was something like a badge of honor almost because I didn't know what it meant. I thought that was people being kind. Mm. It's only when I looked it up in the dictionary to realize, wow, is this how people see me as ugly? Well, if that's what it is, then that's what I must be. So I carried that word. So all of my, you know, especially like throughout my adolescence and even into my 20s, I truly believed that's what I was. So my self-esteem took a big knock. So on one hand, I'm trying to be this jovial person that I was, trying to be the Dulce that I knew. But yet I felt that Dulce had almost gone. Like she almost kind of died in the accident as well. Because if people around me, well, let's call it society, were seeing me in this way, then what place do I have in this world is what I felt. Now, at the age of 10, I was carrying that. Yet my family, who I was around, and coming from a, an Indian background, you know, we're very family orientated. There's always so many of us around. And they kept encouraging me, you know, you're doing great, you're doing well. But not one person actually asked me, how are you doing? How are you coping? Because I put on the smile, the presumption was, wow, she's coping so well. I made friends very quickly, which was incredible. And I never saw them as if they were pitying me. I did truly believe they wanted to be my friends because of who I was. But all the while I was struggling not being the good-looking girl, not being the girl that any of the guys, especially when you're really young and, you know, it's all about dating and trying to attract whoever you're trying to attract. And no one looked at me. It felt very isolating and very lonely. But I couldn't share that with anybody because if I did, I know what they would have said was, it's okay, it's just one of those things, that's life. But my thing is now, as the person that I am, it shouldn't be that way. Why should we accept this type of bullying and name calling and segregation as normal when it's not? And as a child with that loss, that support was not there. Every day trying to not only battle the external scars, but it was the internal scars that were just getting heavier and heavier and heavier to carry. How did you rise above that? I mean, are you a person of faith? Was it your family? Was it just your strength of will? Like, how did you, in those quiet moments when nobody was asking you how you're doing and you're, you're just really reeling on the inside, you're hurting on the inside, how did you get through that? Well, I mean, I used to cry in silence, so I wouldn't show that to anybody. Um, because one or two times that I just happened to cry, it was like, oh, why are you crying for? Come on, it's happened now. And with that in mind, that very much stopped me from crying 
like out in front of friends or family. So I used to cry alone in my room. I have come from a faith, you know, I've come from a Hindu background. However, I never tapped into that because at that point I hated God. I hated God for the fact of whatever happened to me. You took my family away and you took my looks away. That's what I carried for such a long time. I think strength of my will, if I'm going to pinpoint, it would be what kept me going. But I think it was always like my family would always say, things are going to get better. You will be okay. Now, whatever okay looks like, I didn't know. All I knew was I was going to be okay. The thing with okay, there's no an actual definitive explanation of what okay is. Like your version and my version could be different. But all I knew was I was going to be okay. You know, I've gone in and out of surgery after I've been discharged, even after the accident. So I missed a lot of schooling. And I just felt I was always catching up. So therefore, then I felt I wasn't worthy or good enough because now my school grades were kind of suffering. That, that will and dedication to spend time on my academic just wasn't there. I wasn't motivated. And I never felt good enough. I just... If I was catching up, it's just almost, well, what's the point of doing this? But I did sit all my exams and everything, and I did fairly okay to what I thought was okay. You know, that was quite tough because I lost foundation in my life, and not just in my family, but I had no foundation in terms of academics. So I'm always trying to just catch up and, again, never feeling good enough, not getting the the basic concepts right and I feel like a lot of my life I've been chasing this foundation I'm at a different place now of course I've, I've created my own foundation but I just realized how vital foundation is in any kind of recovery now, and, Jen, and I was grieving I was just I was just gonna say you know to have this happen in such a formulative time of your life, I mean, to be 10 years old, think about the next 10 years, how much mm -hmm. of your of your life is defined by the time of 10 to 20, you know, yeah, like so you're, you're growing into adulthood, you know, the beliefs that you have about mm -hmm. yourself, your, you know, relationships with others, your pursuit of love and you know, all of that happens in that time. So to be in a situation where you're wrestling with the physical scars of the accident, wrestling now with the academic challenges, because to your point, I I think you put it in a in a beautiful way. Like I like it's kind of hard to maintain motivation when I'm just trying to get back to where everyone else is. Yeah. Like I'm not I'm not able to create momentum where I excel beyond what they're doing. I'm playing catch up because I've had to take on X number of surgeries to try to repair mm. damage to my body. How many surgeries did you go through? Um, to about count was about over fifty. Over 50 surgeries and, and yeah. skin graft surgeries a lot. Is that what that is? Yeah, skin graft and reconstruction. So, for example, if you've um, got tight tight scarring, it was like um, they call it, uh, what do you call it, constrictive surgery. So, like, your scars are quite constrictive. So, they sort of, you know, loosen those. Because, um, obviously, as you're growing, um, you know, your skin's stretching that much more tight scars so yeah I had a lot of those reconstruction work straightening the fingers again then you know surgery to get them moving so like tendons and having sort of skillet and silicone implants to make sure that all the tendons are separate and not stuck together and 
it was just literally in and out throughout sort of five to six years post post accident, post discharge. Basically, all of my high school time I've spent in um, hospital. Would you be out of school for a couple of weeks? Was it a couple of days? Was it, you know, how did that work? Yeah, so I was out for like about a month. So a month at a time. So, yeah, you literally were, you know, without formal instruction at the time. And, you know, that was pre-COVID. So you didn't have Zoom. You didn't have online classes. You didn't have all that other stuff. So, like, you just literally were having to play uh, catch up. What's interesting is I don't think people realize, too, how painful skin grafting can be because my dad, he passed away in 2015. He had had multiple surgeries on a knee that he had, and then he had his leg amputated at one point, but he had uh, several instances of skin graft. And so, like, they would take skin from his thigh area, and, you know, it was just like one of those what his skin would look like was like somebody took a a cheese grater or something that you would slice something with and just this thinnest layer of skin off. But he used to just complain about how painful it would be. You know, it's just not, it's just not fun and not a fun process. So to your point, you're having to deal with the pain, you're having to deal with scarring, you're growing. And so, and then now you're trying to play catch up in school. So huge disadvantages to you at the time. Absolutely. And I suppose I haven't even given myself credit for the fact that I was battling all of that and then still having to come out the way I have now you know like grounded and stuff but I guess that's probably that shows us uh, us humans our will and testament so to speak you know we can always envisage oh my gosh I wouldn't I don't know how I would have done that I don't know how you've gone through that but I think the thing is we just don't know how we're going to cope until we are in something we can be prepared for Till the you know the cows come home, so to speak, it's the British saying. But you can never be that prepared. Yeah, you know? not for something like um, that. Did you wrestle with depression at all? Absolutely. So I was one of those. You know, I abused alcohol and drugs, but um, I I felt too guilty, so I didn't really dabble down that route for too long. And I suppose with alcohol being young, you get away with it because you're out partying, you're out being having fun. So you don't realize you're using that as a way of suppressing. But I became an overeater, so I comfort ate. And obviously the weight was piling on, piling on. Everyone around me could see it, but I guess I, I could see it, but I didn't feel it. But the more I ate, it just made me feel good, which meant I didn't have to think. And then, you know, at the height, as I always call it, the height of my depression, meaning like where it sort of hit that top of the trough was I was a size 24 in the UK. So I'm guessing in America, it's 28, give and take. I was that size. And compared to I was an average uh, 12, 14 before all of this. So I didn't notice how much had gone up. But it was until a friend of mine really pointed out, she goes, you really need to sort this out. And when someone says that, the presumption is, okay, yes, I'm going to go and join the gym and I'm going to go and exercise and it's fine. But what I didn't address was how I was feeling inside. I didn't address the internal scars. I was dressing the external. So, yes, I went to the gym and, yes, I was feeling good. But when I'd come home, I couldn't wait to tuck into, you know, some snacks to to make myself feel good again, to make myself feel worthy. I feel like I was in the midst of depression for at least three years. But the thing I think with depression in general is 
it doesn't leave you fully. You just learn to cope with it differently or yeah. use different strategies. And that's something I feel is important to share. Like I suffer anxiety. Now, I think somewhere along the line, I guess we all do because we all have this kind of worry or a fear. And sometimes it can be so gripping and certain things may not be as gripping. Um, you know, we're talking about lockdown in general at the moment because that's the thing we're facing as as, as, a, as a world and globally. It does bring about a big level of anxiety, you know, be it financially, be it, be it a job or whatever it is. But when I had this type of anxiety, I didn't know just how big it was and how much it was taking over my life. It's not until recently I did an interview for Face Equality, which is something I'm part of as an ambassador for a charity, where we campaign for people with a visible difference to be represented, to be seen, to be heard. And it dawned on me, for 30 years, I've been carrying this big ball of anxiety where every time I leave my house, I have to check in with where I'm at within myself. Now, how I'm feeling. Because my scars, I don't get to take them off and say, hey, I deal with you tomorrow. I wear them. They're there. They're on display. They're open to scrutiny. They're open to be ridiculed. They're open to be admired. They're open to everything. And every day I leave my house, I'm very much aware of like, oh God, what am I going to face today? And do I want to retaliate? Do I want to defend myself? Can I be bothered today? Should I just curl up and hide? You know, these are the things I think about daily. And I didn't realize I was doing that until I did this interview in lockdown where I've had respite. I've had a break from all of this thinking. And the fear of judgment, you know, because it's just me and my granddad at home. So he knows me. There's no judgment there. I've had such a great break. Now, for me, the point is, once lockdown lifts, do I want to put myself out there again for this? Yeah, that's that's a powerful message. You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you is that, you know, people sometimes will go through trauma, whether it be an accident or something like that. And if it doesn't leave a physical scar, there could be an emotional scar that's there, but it is easier to deal and have good days if the scars aren't visible. I think for you, what's what's just so powerful about what you're saying is that, you know, not only did you suffer just such a tragic loss, but then you have the physical scarring. And it's one of those things that you have to deal with every single day and will deal with for the rest of your life. And so just this thought that you have to kind of mentally check in and prepare yourself for what you're going to face, because I'm, I'm sure there's people out there that are extremely kind. And I think that there's people out there that are extremely rude and mean. And so that is something that was just rocking me a bit thinking about your situation and how you would have to deal with that on a day-to-day basis because there is no way for you to be out in public and not you know have your scars basically front and center absolutely and that's the reality right anyone with a visible difference that's the reality you know and I didn't realize that just how much anxiety I was carrying 
because obviously it's day by day. I don't sit there and go, oh, right, okay, I'm feeling anxiety today. It's not that. It's a feeling that you have inside and you cannot explain to anybody. But you know it's churning and eating you up. If you think over years it develops from this to that to that to that, it's a, it's a big ball of anxiety, as I call it. When I did that interview and it made sense and it took me back to my accident time where I went into voluntary self-isolation, whereby I chose days when I didn't want to go out because I knew what I was going to face. And now we're in you know, isolation, we're in quarantine, lockdown, where we have to stay indoors. It feels great, but I didn't realize, having done lots of interviews regarding lockdown, how much being in self-isolation now feels like such a welcome break compared to when I had my accident and I went into voluntary because I just didn't want to deal with it. It took me back to that time and I didn't realize because I'm confident and I do like going out. I love traveling. I love people, but I just didn't realize how much I was carrying What's interesting is social anxiety is a thing. It's real. And it doesn't matter if you have a visible scar or an invisible scar. The reality is there are many people who are not looking forward to lockdown lifting in that they don't want to deal with some of those things that are out there. you know. And yeah, there is. I've met more kind people than I have mean people for sure. However, it's the mean people's dialogues that are a lot louder yeah. than the yeah. kind of people's dialogues. That those and, those messages can play over and over again in your head. Like you, you know, it's kind of like one negative comment. It takes ten positive ones to even try to carry the same weight of one negative comment. Absolutely. And you know, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of let's change the negative narrative. Where a word, like you know, for example, if, if I see the word ugly now. I don't carry that word. I don't see it as a personal thing anymore. Whereas, you know, rewind four or five years ago when I was still sort of battling my self-confidence, it would play on me. And I would then have to remember, no, flip that word, flip it, change it quick, change it, put more positive words. And I would put pressure on myself to do that. We always used to this negative narrative. Yeah, and being something positive is almost seen as a, it's like a bad thing. Like, you're so full of yourself if you think you're wonderful. No, if you're wonderful, you're wonderful, you know? <laughs> I'd rather carry that than somebody saying you're awful or you're ugly or you're horrendous, do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose I've learned to any word that came into my realm, be it an internal dialogue or from the external, I would try and change that word to find the positive of that word. In the day, if some, you know, some days you wake up and everything and anything just goes wrong. It's just one of those days. <laughs> and we then start, you know, self-persecuting. Oh, my God, it's because I'm such a horrible person and it always happens to me. Why does it always happen to me? You know, this, that. But the thing is, it's just a day and it's fine. It's just your mindset was just there, one thing after the other, but doesn't mean tomorrow is going to be like that. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. That's that's a great advice. And I guess one of the things that I wanted to hear from you is that you mentioned something about representing other people that maybe have had challenges like yourself, whether it be facial mm -hmm. disfigurement, etc. And I really want to educate not only Jen and I, but our listeners on how you 
would suggest people maybe approach you differently? Like, give us an example of a negative occurrence and then give us an example of how you wished somebody would recognize. I mean, I feel like there's probably some things about your life every day in and around and out and about with people that you wish people understood. And so I'm just trying to get at what that is. What kind of a message would you want to give us or give to somebody that doesn't suffer from facial disfigurement or those types of things to someone that is? Well, I just think fundamentally, whether you have a visible difference or not, is to be kind. Because behind a person, something is happening in their life, right? I wear my scars because it's a physical reminder of of my story, of where I've been. But somebody who has an invisible scar, for example, if they've suffered loss, going through depression or anything, they don't wear it on their face. They don't, you know, it's not on a big sticker. Let's be kind. Let's not be run by judgment about somebody based on what we see on the outside. Behind every person is a story. And the reason I campaign for fair representation is because somebody like me is not out there in the media. And if I'm out there in the media, it's portrayed in a negative way. You see a lot of the villains in the film, they have some sort of scar, some sort of visible difference, for example, and it's associated with something villainous. So growing up, I carried the word Freddy Krueger, for example. And I, again, like the word ugly, I adopted that word Freddy Krueger as if that's who I am. And I thought it was very cool, only to come home for my uncle to say, that's not cool. That's a baddie in a film. You do not look like that. But yet, I carried that as if that's my norm. Because we are so programmed to see somebody who looks different as something that's bad. You know, I campaign for fair representation because I am a nice person. I am here to help people because of my story and journey. And I want to be seen in the media and the TV as a regular character. You don't have to center your story around me. I'm an integral part of society. You know, when you see some of these programs and somebody's making a cup of tea and they could be, you know, short, tall, of color, or whatever, they're being represented because they are a part of society. But yet somebody like me with a visible difference are not because we're not even seen on TV like that. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I didn't have a role model. Growing up, I didn't know things were going to be okay or I could aspire to my goals and dreams. And I do this for many young girls who are fighting. So, you know, again, accidents happen. That's why they're called an accident. And we don't ever know the outcome. You know, people lose their limbs. They lose so much. So to know somebody who looks like you is doing well in life is a good aspiration. And that's what I want to be able to give to people, especially young people, because so lost in this social media world, and we're living and we're striving for this perfection. And when they don't hit it is when we have, you know, depression, anxiety, because now we don't feel like we're good enough. And I want to say we are good enough and we can do this, but you need to look at yourself and not others. You know, you have to see what is your capability, what you're able to give to this world. That's why I campaign for change and fair representation. 
I think that's wonderful. I think that's a great mission. And, you know, I think that this is one of the best times ever in the world to be doing so. I just feel like this sense, I mean, I'm 49 and I feel like in my life I've seen such a shift toward inclusion. We're not there yet, but I just feel like the world's moving in that direction more, whether it's inclusion via sexuality, whether it's inclusion via race or color, whether it's inclusion via you know, examples of, of um, somebody that's had a, a tragic accident like yourself. It's just, I, I feel like it's getting better, but it takes effort. It takes mm-hmm. people like yourself championing the cause. And, you know, to listen to you talk about the fact that there isn't anybody in, in media or television or movies or whatever other than villains that's normally portrayed or looks like yourself, then I, I, I get that. I hear that. Yeah. And, I, and so if you're a, a young person right now that has suffered something similar or something physical like that like who do you look to like who do you have as an example and you know i just want to applaud you now for for leading the charge taking on that mantle and and wanting to make a difference in the lives of people that follow you i think that you're turning what happened to you into the maximum positive that's possible for other people and, and championing that cause right yeah no, absolutely. And I look, you're absolutely right, because we are seeing a lot more coming out of equality. Obviously, we have a long way. I mean, we're 2020, and we're still talking about certain subjects, mm-hmm. so which means we just need to create more awareness. And I'm all about awareness, because when we're born, we don't have vast amount of awareness of anything, because we're just simply being. You know, a young child doesn't create judgment. It doesn't know any different unless we put that in that child, right? If we condition that child that this is bad, this is good, this is black, this is white, that's what it's shaping its reality to. But prior to that, all it knows is just survive, breathe, eat, milk, sleep. That's all it knows. It doesn't know hatred. So the thing is, once we create awareness, is when we can change the dialogue, right? Now, it might just mean I might be campaigning for years and years and years, and one day, like a light bulb moment, it would just happen. For example, the LGBT community, how many years have they been campaigning and, you know, how much yeah. prejudice they face on the daily basis? Mm-hmm. Things we don't even hear about, you know, things, the traumas that they face on a daily basis just to be seen and to be accepted, right? First of all, they're trying to accept themselves. It's not easy to come out regardless because to have to feel change within yourself and then to admit it outside, regardless of what it is, is so difficult. It's so difficult. So the fact that they're able to do that and start embracing who they are, that's massive. And then, you know, we're fighting gender equality and then disability. thing with the visible difference is kind of, it doesn't fit in here and it doesn't fit in there. But what it has is it comes about with its own challenges too. For example, I'm part of a campaign called Visible Hate. And I didn't know this growing up that I could have reported an encounter to the police because it was a hate crime. And I didn't know that. But now it's there. You can go to the police station and report this. But years and years, I felt I had to accept this because this is my reality. This is normal. But I'm here to campaign and say, no, it's not normal. And it's certainly not acceptable. You know, we all have a right to be on this planet as who we are in our authentic self. We all have that right. Who determines whether this person is allowed on this planet or not? No one has that right on anyone. We have, we all got a place here. Both of you as individually, you both bring different dimensions 
into this world, both valuable part of this world. That's what I campaigned for. And yeah, and collectively with this one big community, you know, we're seeing so much kindness now, which is so phenomenal. You know, neighbors helping each other, people helping the elderly and the vulnerable. I fall in that category. I'm shielding at the moment. But I've had so much kindness poured out to me. I'm very blessed that I can do online shopping and touch what I can afford things. But what about those who can't, right? And we're seeing people reaching out to that. For me, this is it. This is the new world. This is exciting. But we also know that there's a, a lot of work to still be done. A, a phenomenal amount. Look, we're seeing you know, hatred around us. We want to hear more good news then we want to hear tragic news. Amen and, to that. I agree with that. And, you know, and I just think the more we start talking and open these dialogues and keep creating awareness and space, hold space for people to allow themselves to just be without judgment, that's how we're going to evolve. Well said. Well said, Tulsi. Well said. Um, as we close out the show, I guess I, I just would like to hear your thoughts or what you would say to somebody right now that is feeling anxiety because of what's going on with the pandemic. Maybe they're fearful. Maybe they're worried about the future. Maybe they're worried about losing their business. I mean, with you having gone through what you've gone through and risen above it and now in a position where I really feel like you're as confident as you've ever been and really kind of leading the charge to change the world. What what would you say to somebody right now that's feeling overwhelmed, feeling anxious, feeling like they just don't have any idea how they're going to make it through? I think a few things to you know think about here, first of all, is this type of pandemic, none of us in our lifetime have experienced anything like it. It doesn't come with a manual. You know, there's not a book that we go to and say, right, that's the way to deal with it. And it's a bit like life. You know, each and individual lives like we all that we have, none of us are born with a manual. You know, none of us are born to navigate through life in such a way. We go through it by experiences and everything else. So see this moment as an experience. Can't take away people's fear and anxiety because that's real, you know, especially financially or whatever. However, I would always advise, observe your feelings rather than responding to them. So if you are feeling fearful, what is the fear? So if the fear is, you know, I'm going to lose my business, start looking at what's the worst outcome, for example. And then in that worst outcome, what can you do to better that situation? What can you control? Because what you can control, that's fine. But what you cannot control... We have to learn to surrender or let go. In that trying to control everything is where we get lost. And that's where anxiety builds and heightens. It heightens when we can't control something. That gripped me for many, many years. I can't control how the world sees me. All I can control is how I see myself. That has helped me. But fundamentally, I have lost everything in terms of a physical way, like my family, um, my looks, which I've now learned to find within. I've had to go within to appreciate what I've got outside. Other people who have it from the outside, they may still go home and feel isolated. They may not still feel good. You know, you might call them, oh, they're so beautiful, they're so good looking, all of these things. But when they go home, they may not feel that. They may still feel like they're not good enough, they're not worthy. So we always have these presumptions. So for me, the key thing here is 
the essence of who you are, no one can take that away from you. Your actual soul, your actual spirit, no one can take that away from you. People can take away, you know, your looks, your money, your physical aspects, your material, but the essence of who you are, no one can take that away from you. And if you have that amazing essence within you and you value it, you can build your life again. You can build your life and this time you can build it even bigger and better. That's what this world is doing to us now. It's yeah. giving us the opportunity to create a new normal. We don't have to be the slave of what was going on before, as in working consistently and never seeing your family and just not liking life, but you keep doing it again and again. We do not have to be the hamster in the wheel anymore. We have the ability to create a new change. Yes, it's different, and yes, it can be unnerving, but it's also exciting because it's almost like we've had a reset button, and now here you are, here's a clean slate, off you go. Well said. Thank you so much. Great words. Great wisdom. Thank you for your courage and your vulnerability. I've really, really enjoyed your perspective on life, your perspective on the pandemic, the strength that you're showing. So thank you so much, Tulsi, for uh, being part of our podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And you guys are just amazing. And I absolutely adore your energy, actually. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for that. We've cultivated this now for 31 years, you know. It, it, ta- it takes a while to kind of cultivate this awesomeness. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we have fun together. We Our friends call us uh, Shen because we're always together. You know, Sean and Jen. So they call us Shen. And, uh, we, you know, we just, we like hanging out together. But thank you for the energy yeah, com- comment. So and thank you so much for, for what you shared. We really appreciate it. And I know people are going to get uplifted yes, hearing sure. you talk. And we're going to come visit okay. you. We're gonna, oh, please do. We're going to jump the pond and come meet you in person. And then we're going to be able to talk in the British accent as well. Yes, I'm going, I'm going to practice. And so when we meet, I will be like a professional. Oh, I love it. It'll be great. Thank you again. Thank you. All right, Jen, what'd you think about our interview with Tulsi Vagiani? I love her. She's awesome. Yeah, we're going to be fast friends. (laughs) You are already making plans to go out and visit (laughs) her in the UK. But I think she wants to come to California, too. I know, like we should go right here. It's like Show kind of like around. two vacations. It would is be what great. I'm thinking. But can you imagine just what she's had to deal with, but yet to to be such a bright, shining light like she is? Yeah. She's positive. She's uplifting. I can tell she's grounded and right. rooted. She's and, very strong. Yeah, extremely I could strong. never imagine that. I don't think anyone that hasn't been through that can imagine that. Yeah. I just can't imagine that. I mean, you lose your whole family. Yeah. I just. Can't and then, and then physically to mm-hmm. have a reminder of right. it via scars for the rest of your life. Yeah, and honestly, I was thinking when she was telling us that, you know, she can't escape it kind of thing. The world would just be so much better if everyone was just kind. Like, be kind. Like, what if everyone had to wear their scars on the outside? Yeah. What if there was like, you know, like a... a a headband or something that says I'm, you know, this or I'm that. Like, would you be so judgmental no. in that case? Would you not be kind? If you have your scars on the outside and everyone sees them, how would you actually be in society? Yeah, how would you feel then, right? Right. Well, I think it's that old adage that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Hurt people hurt people. Well, I don't right? like it. 
I don't like it either. But I just, like, be I just kind. think kindness yeah. is free. Like, kindness why matters. is that just not an easy thing for people? It drives me crazy. It's Colby's favorite hat. Kindness matters. Kindness does matter. <laughs> it really does. It does. And uh, I just think as long as people keep pressing, as mm-hmm. long as people keep, you know, prodding forward, I think she's doing that. She's talking about inclusion. Yeah. She's leading the charge, talking about, you know, examples uh, like herself in media, et cetera, mm-hmm. so that other people that are facing the same type of challenges that they have an inspiration, they have right. somebody to look up to. And I think we're getting there. I'm encouraged by how much society has changed since I've been alive. Right. You know, so just imagine how much it's going to change over the next just 50 gonna years. It's going to take time. Yeah, just takes yeah. every everything in due process, right? right? All right, Jen, if people want more of our show and want to connect with us, how do they do so? Well, you can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Hope Radio Podcast. You and- also can listen to us. Yes. Right? Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio. Did I miss one? Amazon Alexa. Yeah, Alexa. <laughs> Anywhere where you can tune into a podcast. Yes, yeah, so all you got to do is search Hope Radio Podcast, and we are there. We are there. All right, here's my thought of the day. I think very appropriate given our interview with uh, Tulsi. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. That's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So appropriate. I thought so, too. Well, we're getting ready to have another interview tomorrow. We're going to talk with Cindy Lippert. She's 70-plus years old. Her husband still races cars. They're like an adventure (laughs) couple. They've been in the film industry. They're actors, and they're just all kinds of awesome. So I cannot wait to talk to Cindy Lippert tomorrow about her life and what she's done. That's exciting, yeah. So we're going to do it again. Okay, be kind, people. Same time, same place tomorrow? Yes, yes.